Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Today's panel consists of Paul Begg, the author of Jack the Ripper, The Facts and the Definitive History, a co-editor of the Jack the Ripper A to Z and co-author along with John Bennett of CSI Whitechapel, The Forgotten Victims, and The Complete and Essential Jack the Ripper. Also joining us is John Lee Reese, a researcher and frequent contributor to Ripperologist Magazine. And also on hand is Allie Ryder, the administrator of the website casebook.org, and our special guest, Adam Selzer, a prolific author of both fiction and nonfiction books, and a Chicago crime historian who is rightly considered the foremost expert on the life and criminal career of the murderer H.H. Holmes. Adam has published three books on Holmes, Inside the Murder Castle, Very Truly Yours, H.H. Holmes, and most recently, H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. And I thank everyone for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hi. Adam, you've probably had a very busy last few weeks. Uh, Pretty busy last few weeks. Yeah, I've got uh, my summer and spring day jobs going on, but also uh, researching a new project and also talking quite a lot about H.H. Holmes. Well, I'd like to say that I found your book to be the best true crime book and even the best biography that I've read in a very long time. Well, thank you. And actually, one of the books I finished right before I started yours was Lawrence Bergreen's Capone, The Man and His Era. So I've been stuck in Chicago crime for the last (laughs) few weeks. And it was nice Uh, to see uh, John Norton, the Chicago Police uh, Department um, detective. uh, Oh, I love that guy. In your new H.H. Holmes book as he also was involved in the Capone case. So. Right, he was he was involved in, he, he's kind of a forgotten person now, but he's involved in like half of the Chicago crime stories between 1890 and 1933. Like, now, um, if you would uh, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led to your deep interest in the dark history of Chicago, and in particular the activities of H.H. H. Holmes. Well, about uh, 15 years ago, I moved to Chicago. It was the middle of the George Bush economy, and it was kind of hard to find a real job, so I had to kind of make up my own. And one of those was I got a job working for a ghost tour company. And, you know, they taught me all the stories to tell people, and I decided, uh, you know, it was the beginning of the smartphone era. I was worried people could fact-check me on their phones, so I started wanting to do my own research. And whether people had actually seen a ghost there or not is uh, notoriously hard to trace, but we could at least... I figured we could at least get the historical parts uh, a little more accurate. So I started hitting places like the newspaper archives and trying to get uh, tracing things back to primary sources. Uh, a few years into my career in the ghost tour business, I uh, one of my companies wanted to start doing H.H. Holmes tours because Devil in the White City, like everybody on the L has been reading Devil in the White City. Everybody in town has read it. And even though there's almost nothing left, uh, a lot of people wanted to see things like where the murder castle was, where the White City was. Um, and I, I didn't really feel like there was enough material to, to get a tour without padding it, just partly because everything is so spread out all around the city. So I started going to the newspaper archives and trying to get the original stuff about Holmes as it was first written and found out really just how much data there is about Holmes that's been sitting on neglected microfilm reels. And eventually I found more that was sitting in uh, old paperwork from lawsuits. The man got sued a lot, uh, like 60 different lawsuits that I found in Chicago alone. So there's lots of paperwork. There's lots 
lots of data about the guy. And it became kind of a treasure hunt of trying to find all the best sources. Because the story didn't just take place in Chicago. He was in Texas for a while. He was in St. Louis for a while. He was in Philadelphia in prison for, for his trial. And there was a lot of good stuff in Philadelphia papers. They would just, like, steal letters out of his cell. And, uh, in your book, you attempt to give the readers uh, as much as possible uh day-by-day, week-by-week accounting of Holmes' life, and the newspaper right. coverage is case-generated. Right. Because uh, it's, uh, it's two different stories. It's, it's uh, what, what, what happened and then what the papers reported day-by-day are two really kind of different stories. Right. And you're constantly uh, juggling the, those two aspects, which... Mm-hmm. Um, it's tricky. It was, it was a real trick. Yeah, I, I would imagine. And now, at, at any point, did you come across evidence that he left America in August of 1888 or earlier and traveled to England and stay there until at least November 188 or into 1889. Well, about the only reference I found that could really be considered good data that he left America left, left the United States at all. He went to Canada for sure. But in 1895, um, after he'd been convicted of insurance fraud, but before they'd started finding the bodies, they asked him, all right, Holmes, uh, how can we find this, these children and this Minnie Williams woman? And he told him to take out an ad in the New York Herald, which was kind of hard to get in the UK a year ago, but maybe she could find it because they were all supposed to be in London. So he said, take out an ad in the New York Herald and maybe she'll see it there. But it was kind of hard to get the New York Herald a year ago, which implies that he had been in London enough to know how easy or hard it was to get the New York Herald there. Uh, as of about a year ago from um, June of 1895. We, we, his, his movements around eight, spring of 1894 are very well documented, though. We know he was in, L- in London at that time. Um, but in a- 1888... Right. Well, my my data on that, I've got there's a th- few things that show up in like the voter rolls in the legal archives. It's not as strong as some of the stuff that I found. It's not like he actually took out a loan and signed the paperwork or anything. But my, my stuff, uh, my my best indications to me is I think I think he was in Chicago and New Hampshire during that period. OK, so Alice and Nellie Peitzel were murdered in Toronto. And so that was perhaps the only time that you've discovered he had left the United States that we have evidence of. Uh, solid ones. I think there was some other times that he's no, that he might have been known to go to Canada or Montreal, but it's still North America. Right. Regarding his, his whereabouts in late 1888, what I noticed from Adam's book was that his daughter was born in, I think it was July the fourth, 1889. So yeah. um, my maths isn't brilliant, but you know, taking nine months <laughs> away, you see October. Um, 88. So I know there's that old phrase, you know, you'll always know who your mother is, but not necessarily your father. But um, mm. if we're assuming that she was Holmes's biological daughter, then that's a strong indication of where he was, at least at some point in October 1888. Rather than right. Well, we, we know one thing he was up to that month. Indeed. Holmes is similar, although I'd venture to say not the same person as Jack the Ripper, but they both share a post-murder legacy portrayed in the popular press and in entertainment, which is largely based on myth. And police officials, along with an eager press at the time, helped create these myths. And in Holmes' case, he himself added to the creation of his legend. Is that right? 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think the press actually did a very good job with Holmes in the day. The, the trouble is the Chicago reporters would would go along with the police and their wild theories about what they were finding. But then when it turned out the theories didn't go anywhere, they were the first ones to say it. Uh, trouble is, as the story spread around the country into other papers, like the, the press might uh, the press in, like, say, New Jersey might announce, oh, they found the guy who bought dead bodies to turn into skeletons. But they wouldn't really cover it when it turned other than like a tiny mention when it turned out that that guy's story went nowhere. Um, but yeah, over over time, then Holmes himself eventually confessed. Uh, when when they paid him enough, he confessed to everything he had ever been accused of, uh, plus a few more besides, including a few people like confessing to a few murders of people who were still alive and kicking. I and I can't think of a single other real life murder case in which the majority of the essential elements that are related about the case to the public, <laughs> via books and television shows, over the last you know, 50 years uh, are just simply not true uh, to where it's like the Holmes case over time has morphed into a fiction tale. Real, it really has. Yeah, well, for, for years and years, the only information about Holmes that was readily available was the chapter in Herbert Asbury's book, which was uh, originally published as Gem of the Prairie. Then they changed the title to the Chicago Underworld and now Gangs of Chicago. And his major his chapter before the Internet, before microfilm, for a long time, that was the main source of information about H.H. H. Holmes was that chapter. And his version was a mixture of a few Chicago papers, more importantly, the New York World's uh, tabloid reporting on Holmes, and then quite a bit of his own imagination as well. But that, but the, uh, Herbert Asbury's take has really been the starting point for everything. And I, I really do find that really with an awful lot of uh, Chicago murder stories, what we remember about it now, what gets written up in true crime anthologies and on blog posts and things is really more based on how J. Robert Nash or Ben Hecht or Herbert Asbury retold the story years later. Now, Herbert Asbury, who uh, our listeners might um, know from him writing Gangs of New York, which was made yeah. into the Martin Scorsese movie. Um, mm. But tell us about the New York World article and it's the impact it had on generating these myths that persist to this day about the castle. Uh, it's got a source number one. New York World is a. I once saw an advert. I once saw it described as a combination of what you'd get if you crossed the New York Times with the National Enquirer. Which is a very good description. They did a lot of really good investigative reporting, but they also would fill their magazine sections with a lot of pure nonsense. In fact, when when Holmes confessed, he confessed to killing uh, 27 people, several of whom were still alive. About two weeks before that, the New York World had announced that Holmes was going to be confessing to murdering 20 people. And it was total nonsense. He had turned them down, so they got revenge by publishing a completely fake story. Some of the people they had him confess to killing, anybody with a, even a casual interest would have known was still alive. But uh, after that, he kind of had to outdo them. But their big one, and they did some very good Holmes reporting. They reported on the trial pretty well. They conducted interviews with him. They let him write several articles for them himself, uh, most of which, uh, for by way of shameless plug, is in uh, Very Truly Yours, H.H. Holmes. But in August of 1895, after the castle building and the investigation into the castle had been in the news for a few weeks, they published a big article called Castle of a Modern Bluebeard. And it was uh, if you if you've ever been uh, looked up Holmes online, you've probably seen the diagram that has things like the room of the three corpses, the black closet, the death shaft, the maze. That's from their article about it. It was eventually republished in the Tribune as well. 
But their whole article was a little bit of the stuff from the Chicago papers and quite a bit of stuff from their own imagination, too. There's even a couple of points where you can see how they're, uh, where they got the wrong idea from the Chicago papers, like about where the foot, uh, mysterious footprint was. And one of their major lines in it was, well, Holmes was conducting a hotel during the World's Fair, and the list of uh, authorities noted that in, after the fair, the list of missing persons was a long one, and the greater number of foul play was suspected. How many of these people might have found their way to the Holmes, Holmes Hotel? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but that one sentence ended up being requoted verbatim in Herbert Asbury's thing. It's, uh, it's in just about every Holmes book that's come out since, in fact. And their big mistake they had made was that Holmes had talked about starting a hotel and raised money to start a hotel and added a third floor that was supposed to be a hotel, but he never actually ran a hotel. Um, the whole thing was really just a blind to swindle investors, suppliers, and insurance companies. But that one, that one article ended up getting reprinted. Uh, it got reprinted in the time. It got reprinted all over the place. It was the main source for Herbert Asbury, and it really became the genesis of the Holmes myth as we know it today. That one tabloid article buried in the back of an issue of the New York World. And it persists like in, in Harold Schechter's book and in Eric Larson's book. Now, did the New York world, like in, in um, Harold Schechter's book, he mentions the torture chambers, shoots, greased shoots for dumping bodies um, down right. into the cellar. Now, um, but then once the bodies got down to the cellar, <clears throat> there was um, supposedly vats full of acid and a crematorium, dissecting tables, cases full of <laughs> surgical instruments. Did, did, those, did all of those details also stem from this original New York World article, or did, or did that start with um, Ashbery? Um, uh, kind of uh, adding his his little uh, details to the original well, New York World article. A little of both. For a while, there was rumors that they were going to find an acid pit, and at one point, they even announced that they had found the acid pit. But then, when they woke up, opened it up, all that was in there was a bucket of petroleum. Uh, but a, a lot of papers did spread. They found the acid pit, but not the oh, it just turned out to be some regular heating gas in there. Um, so a lot of the stuff, they did find a bench that they speculated might have been a dissection table. They found, uh, they found all, sorts of dear, all sorts of weird crap down in the basement from his uh, various glass-bending experiments and his various uh, gas-generation machine fakes. Uh, he, he was involved in a lot of different swindles that involved gas over the years. So they found a lot of things and speculated maybe these were the crematoriums. Uh, also, they thought that the wood-burning stove might have been a crematorium for a while, even though that wouldn't really work. Um, so, but the New York world uh, kind of kind of pushed aside the fact that a lot of this had already been debunked even in August of 1895 a few weeks after it was uh, first uh, first speculated so some of that was in there then the whole thing about like having uh, a medieval rack for creating a race of giants and uh, horror movie toys and uh, torture equipment down there a lot of that was uh, a lot of that never turns up anywhere before <laughs> Harold Asbury in 1940 wow and uh, go ahead Allie. Well, no, so I was just saying, so it's sort of like, um, because, like, when you say, like, well, the murder castle wasn't a hotel, you know, that it, there were residents that lived there that it's speculated that he, he killed, but it wasn't a hotel as in, like, Not the constant the influx sense, yeah. of victims, and people were murdered there, but it was, so it's all, like, based on that single shred line of truth, 
Mm-hmm. But then exaggerated to the 1000 degree. There wasn't floods of people coming through and staying a night and then disappearing kind of thing. Right. Is right. There were there, there were several long term residents. The second floor was apartments. And he did add a third floor that was supposed to be a hotel, but it was never really open for business or anything. The people who lived there lived there for months at a time. Now, it's like, it would be like a lodging house, I think they called it back then or something like that. So, or so yeah. flats, flats, they called it. Yeah. And the uh, the third floor, there was actually right in the middle of the fair, there was a big fire on the third floor. Strangely enough, Holmes had gotten all of the furniture out there the day before, lucky enough. And strangely enough, also he had three or four insurance policies taken out on it for fire. But this was uh, right in the middle of the fair, the middle of the night. If it had been a bustling hotel, there should have been an awful lot of people on that third floor. But there wasn't. There was like six, uh, half a dozen people in the entire building, all known employees and long-term residents. Right, and the employees um, of the downstairs businesses, as well as a few of the residents, seem to have the run of the place. Right, I mean they use largely, the, yeah. They use the secret, the quote unquote secret staircase, and yeah. knew all about these odd rooms with fake walls and doors. And uh, I believe your book mentions that the secret chambers that the newspapers reported was actually the place where the clerks who worked in the drugstore slept yeah so yeah uh, it, it was they, they they called it the secret chamber but it wasn't so secret that everybody there didn't know about it they all people people thought it was kind of cool actually for, for me this, this is one of the most shocking things i found when reading your book is you know i, I had this image of Holmes and the murder castle of it being this bustling thriving massive hotel i mean castle summons you know you know, imagine it being the size of like a modern five-star type hotel. Full yeah, you, of think of, you think of like um, the Ansonia in New York or something. Yeah, and him luring people back there and then, you know, torturing them, killing them, bricking bodies up in the walls and all this. And then reading your book, you find it, it's just utter nonsense. He was a, a bit of a rubbish con man. He wasn't even a particularly good con man from your book. Right, he was um, a very audacious con man, but not a particularly yeah. good one. Yeah. He was, he was blatant about it, which, you know, a good con man probably shouldn't be. They should probably be slightly more subtle and sneaky. Right. And, you know, the, I, you know I, I would classify him as a serial killer, but of, of the comfort financial gain type, but just when people kind of got in the way. Not, mm. you know, there was obviously no sexual motivation, no thrill motivation, no sadism or power in the way we understand. It was just simply, you know... Oh, I need, you know, they're in the way of my scheme or this insurance plan would benefit me if, if I bump them off. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the image of homes we have, which I think is it's gained a lot in the popular culture over the last couple of years. And you've got Scorsese and DiCaprio making a movie about it um, and all of the, the press things you see mentioned, you know, that he's believed to have killed 300 people or whatever. Um, the BBC TV series Sherlock mentioned the case Um uh, Sherlock Holmes in the series, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, mentioned Holmes offhand to give a description of it that he built this maze of a hotel and stuff like that. Um, the other example I can think of uh, American Horror Story, the hotel season, Hotel Cortez, mm. and uh, is based on the murder castle. And you've got you know hidden rooms and shoots and bodies bricked up in walls, and you just find it, it's complete nonsense. And I was it's, quite it's a tall, it's a tall tale, really. It's it's a great story, but uh, yeah, yeah, but it's a tall tale. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and, one of my favorite things that he wrote is uh, when he wrote an I can't remember if this was specifically in the New York World or the New York Journal. He wrote uh, articles for both of those on the same day in November after his trial. And at one point he said, now, listen, I'm supposed to be this criminal mastermind. Do you really think a criminal mastermind would have buried uh, two bodies in the shallow grave of a rental property? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a fair point right there. Yeah, that's. A, I was going to kind of mention the same thing John was saying. Yeah, he wasn't a very good criminal at all. I mean— a lot of people knew about and participated in his schemes, um, you know, and and which were all discovered relatively quickly. And as a murderer, uh, he was sloppy and failed in every attempt he made to disguise the way his victims died in order to hide oh. the fact that they had been murdered, buried them there's, so they'd never be found. A few of a few of the early ones, you know, we still don't know where it really happened to Julia Connor, Emmeline Sagrand, Pearl Connor, or the Williams girls. Those are still how exactly he killed them. The bodies were never found. Right. And so we don't, we don't really know. He did a pretty good job with those ones, apparently. Yeah, which leads me to the question of how many murders do you believe Holmes committed? I would say probably about 10. A dozen would probably be my high estimate. There's probably a, there's you know there's there's a list of people that I'm pretty sure that he killed, uh, a list of people that and then there's a whole list of maybes beyond that, most of which were just idle newspaper speculation, like hey we haven't seen so and so in a while, right? And, and then maybe yeah. a few weeks later there'd be a tiny item saying oh we found her she's okay. Yeah, and your book like goes so, through and lists all of these people who, who the news newspapers at one time or another accused Holmes of murdering and and oh. Nope, but they were interviewed by the police two weeks before, or oh, they right. popped up later. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, there's the there was nine, a, there was a lot of that going around. There, there's the nine, there's, there's, um, the Connors and and Sigrand, and then the Williams sisters, and and the Pitezels. Yeah. So that's the, the I know I know in Jack and the Ripper stories they call they talk about the canonical five. This is the uh, canonical nine in the Holmes case. Mm-hmm. And even then, there's always a chance he farmed the work out to somebody else. Maybe Minnie Williams really was still alive someplace. And, you know, it's interesting because it's like it's not like we're now we've changed the whole history of the world. And Holmes was actually this innocent guy. Well, no, but, no. I mean, he's a murderer, but it's like so interesting to just see how. You can take like like and just think of all the things in our lives where that is the case where 30, 40, 100 years from now, there's going to have been a small incident. Or something happened and it was bad. But mm. then it's one of those like where where, you know, everybody knows where they were on that day and then the story starts growing and growing and growing right. and, and by the time it gets around to history, everybody has what they in 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 my mind, in most people's minds who know anything about this case, who've been to Chicago and done one of the thing you know, one of the tours or seen it, you know, he is this huge, clever dun dun dun, scary music lurking in the shadows. And it's just not true. Yes, he was a horrible person. He killed a bunch of people, but it was nowhere near like the myth of the hundreds. Right. They checked in and they never checked out, you know, that whole mythology (laughs) of it. It's a real event. He's a real murderer, but it's. 90% 90% of what everybody knows is complete myth. Right. I have to remind myself of this sometimes because sometimes I find myself just uh, d- debunking so many mythological stories. I do have to remember. It's not like we're besmirching the honor of a good man here or anything like that. Right. And he wasn't the super villain he's made out to be, but he also, he wasn't, a, it's not like he was a good guy. 
Right. Yeah, so it's sort of like, oh, you know, but it's just, that's really interesting because it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance where right. it's like, okay, I'm not going like, oh, poor H.H. Holmes. People thought he was really bad, you know, because it's like, <laughs> well, he was. He killed a bunch and of people. And he was just pretty bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it, it does make him more more understandable or real because, you know, you can kind of understand someone killing for a financial motive. Terrible thing to do. But you can kind of understand it. Whereas the whole thing of him, you know, luring people into his castle and killing them for, you know, thrills and torturing them and stuff. It does make him seem more pantomime. Yeah. Um, you know, more, more of a Victorian melodrama villain. Whereas this does make him seem more real, more three-dimensional than the, the legend does. Mm. He's, uh, he's, he's not the devil. He is just a, a, a terrible criminal, but a man. Right. That's that's what that's what the original subtitle was going to be was how a murderer became a devil. And he he really he was just he was just a regular murderer. But he even at the time he grew into this whole devilish figure that they were even talking about having supernatural powers and things. And I think he he seemed to revel in it as well. He seemed to love that himself. Um, you he know, got he, his... I, he he grew to after he had decided that he was definitely being hanged. He got he started to really get a kick out of it. You know, once, thing, it, once it stopped being once it stopped being um, a burden to him, he started really enjoying himself. In case our listeners aren't aware too much about the story of H. H. Holmes, is um, is as John alluded to, uh, he was essentially a con man, and who um, I don't think I mean he must have been a born con man because it doesn't ever seem like he ever worked an honest day in his life. And but the the uh, the case that eventually led to his downfall was um, perhaps after he had already committed murders uh, was an insurance fraud case that he had cooked up with a friend of his named Benjamin Peitzel, um, mm-hmm. which led to Peitzel's death, and then this kind of weird. Uh, cross-country juggling of Holmes with this, the, the, the remaining members of Peitzel's family and trying to deal with them at the same time he's having to go visit his wife and all this stuff. It's just, I mean, for, well, first, you know, the, your book, there's a large cast of characters in this story. I mean, Holmes had three wives that he was juggling around with, several mistresses, some of those mistresses would be murdered. Uh, he had a wife in New Hampshire with whom he had a son, and that that and Jeff Mudgett is descended from that uh, New Hampshire wife's son. But he ba- mm. but Holmes basically abandoned them. Then he had a second wife who had a daughter by Holmes, who he set up in a suburb of Chicago. Then he had his third wife. Who Georgiana, who he seemed to be closest to, and she is the right. wife who gets most involved with the case at the trial level and in the press. And then you have all these people who were acquaintances of Holmes and who worked in the castle, and then all these people hunting him, insurance agents, Pinkerton detectives. I mean, keeping all of these characters straight, as the story <laughs> unfolds, is it was a bit of a challenge for me as a reader. I don't know about uh, the rest of the panelists. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm sure. I can only imagine the work involved 
on your side, Adam, <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as the writer putting it all down. I mean, uh, I, I, at a point, certain point, I feel like I'm kind of living with these people. Like they're all my neighbors. Uh, I know. I feel like I know Ned Connor better than I know most of my own actual neighbors. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have you know, there's there's a lot of letters exchanged between these people that are still extant. There's a lot of uh, interviews conducted with them by the press. Um, the newspapers in those days were nothing if not diligent. It's something I've been kind of – I'm working on cases from 1920 right now. I'm mean, just kind of stunned the difference between like how a hanging was covered in 1895 versus how it was ha- covered 20 years later. It went from being two pages above and below the fold to being eight or nine column inches. So the case that, uh, as I was mentioning, uh, going to go into early before I got off on that tangent about just how many people are involved in this story, the case that eventually led to Holmes' execution is the insurance fraud case um, right. with Ben Peitzel. Can you uh, go into a little bit of how, how that happened for us? Yeah, some, sometime in about 1893, he said to his friend Ben Peitzel, here, we've, I've got a great scam. We're going to go to Philadelphia and fake your death. We'll take out a $10,000 life insurance policy. Then we'll get a dead body that we say is you and get that policy from the insurance company. And at some point along the line, I don't know if it was even before he ever brought this up to Peitzel or what, at some point along the line, he decided he would just kill Benjamin Peitzel. And it might have been this plan the entire time. It might have really been a plan for suicide the entire time. That was certainly what Peitzel was thinking. But then in September of 1895, he did kill Benjamin Peitzel in Philadelphia, tried to make it look like he had died in an accident, uh, then tried to claim the insurance policy. Officially, the policy went to his widow, though he ended up taking most of the money for himself. And the insurance company got a tip from a train robber that Holmes had shared a cell with when he was briefly in prison in St. Louis. I think he was kind of starstruck by this guy. This guy, uh, Marion Marion Hedgepeth, was a fairly famous train robber at the time. And Holmes, I think, had spent 1894 kind of setting himself up as a Wild West outlaw. He had uh, gone down to Texas with his new wife. He was operating under a different name and saying, oh, yeah, my if they found out Mr. Uh, Mr. Howard was in town, as he was calling himself, uh, they might come and kill us because that was my uncle, Mr. My uncle, Mr. Howard, had a ranch down here, and now there are murderous squatters down there. And not to mention Mr. Howard was Jesse James' old alias. And then he got involved in horse swindles. And now all of us sudden he's in a prison cell sharing a cell with a guy who had robbed the same train as Jesse James had robbed. So he was totally starstruck. He told them all about this plan to uh, defraud the insurance company. And when, uh, when Hedgepeth eventually told the uh, told the authorities, thinking he might get him clemency and get him out of prison, he knew bits of data that he shouldn't have just been able to guess. So one of the most of the people were inclined to brush off his statement, but one of the guys at the insurance company put two and two together and said, "Okay, let's see if we can find out some more about this," and eventually uh, started trailing Holmes around the country and figured out what had really happened. And they still thought at the time that it was probably just an insurance fraud case, and Benjamin Peitzel was still alive somewhere. And when they caught up with Holmes, he readily admitted that. I said, oh yeah, I'm a big insurance fraudster. I do lots of insurance fraud. I've been doing it since college. I've got all kinds of stories about insurance frauds I've been in. Many of those stories he told at the time eventually became part of the Holmes mythology and presented as fact. Uh, But gradually, uh, Holmes quickly changed his story. He was in prison for about a month, and for about a month he had been all over the papers as this fantastic insurance fraudster who had pulled off a $10,000 scam on Fidelity Mutual. But then he changed his story. He said, no, that really was Benjamin Peitzel's body I just made it look like an accident because it was really a suicide and the policy didn't cover suicides. 
So that's what he pleaded guilty to initially. And he ends up kidnapping uh, most of Peitzel's entire family. And two really, gr- the and, whole family. Yeah, in two gr- in two separate groups <laughs> that he would shuttle around mm. from city to city for months on end until he figured out what to do with them. And, right. and and then always promising them that they would reunite with Benjamin Peitzel, uh, their father and husband. Right. Um, well, there were there were two groups. There was Alice, Nellie, and Howard, the uh, younger kids, and also in the other group there was Mrs. Peitzel, her older daughter Dessa, and uh, baby Wharton. And the Alice had been to identify the body. She presumably knew that her father was really dead, and had probably told uh, Nellie and Howard that no father's really dead. So that's probably why he had to get them out of the way, because they they knew that they knew too much. Uh, Mrs. Peitzel and Dessa were both being told that the that they were that they were going to be going to see Ben any time now. And in fact, Dessa had even talked with her father, and her father said, "If you hear anything about me being dead, don't think anything of it. We've got this whole plan coming up." And then how? And then he brought. Um, okay, so it, it, when he dispatches the children. Um, and then there's some indication that he was also planning on killing the second group that included Peitzel's wife and and two other children, right? Um, Possibly, yeah. It's, it's uh, There was a whole thing where he wrote her a thing saying, hey, there's some nitro in the basement of the place where you're staying. Can you go move it? And apparently it was – according to her, it was set up like a death trap where one wrong move and she would have blown the whole house up. Uh, this was a little too late to get it into the book, but the sheriff of the town they were in went to the house. He did find the nitro, but he didn't find the whole death trap set up. So that, that might have just come out of Carrie Peitzel's imagination. He may have been trying to kill her, but it's hard to tell for sure at this point. It sounds like a Roadrunner cartoon. It really does. Almost, you know? yeah. <laughs> the, the, the whole thing is just so farcical. The fact that he's running around all these cities with two groups of people trying to keep them away from each other and stuff like that. What on earth? Yeah, no, it's man? hard to laugh. I mean, I'm like laughing, but, you know, it's hard to laugh when, they're, yeah. when yeah, all just... these people are dead, uh, you know, were murdered. Yeah. But... Yeah, uh, well, you know, yeah, is he, the man found himself in way over his head at that point, I think. Oh, I don't think he's a criminal genius. He's clearly, you know, guessing what to do from one moment to the other. There's no plan. There's no... And some of the, you know, the explanations were just so farcical. Um, what on earth? <laughs> That's my reaction for a lot, a lot of this bit. It was just, what on earth is going on? It really is like you pulled back the curtain in Wizard of Oz. Like, there was this great, you know, story, <laughs> and then you pull back the curtain, and it's this schnebby, nubby little, you know, yeah, bit of nothing. We, easily it, little it, small penis man, according to the doctors. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it, you basically destroyed my entire life because oh, now sorry. you have to question, like, all the... No, I'm kidding. But, you know, now, like, you think about it and think about all the things we just take for granted as true. Right. That have come down to us. You know, I mean, this is how religions get founded. This is how, you know, uh, you know, just people talk and it goes from something pretty right. bad to just exaggerated myth. Like, and, and then everyone believes that that's the truth. That right, because that's, that's the, the only. 
Right, because that's that's been the only version of the story that was available to people for a long time. We've just, unless unless you really troubled yourself to go to Chicago and get and dig through the microfilm reels, and that's an interesting thing now with more and more old papers being digitized and more and more old books and sources being digitized. Uh, there's so much more access to primary sources for people these days, and I, I have to wonder just how many other famous stories from the 19th and 18th century we're going to find out. Um, we're just well, we're a- just we're just taking bad sources this whole time. Yeah, like. Like, that's my whole point is like, well, now I ha- like you have to go back and question, well, did that really happen? Because, you know, like I've studied one of the things you said you did tours in Chicago and I'm a huge uh-huh. uh, quote unquote haunted history kind of person, not because I necessarily think things are haunted. But usually if somebody's saying a place is haunted, it's because there's a good history behind it. There's like, oh, this You're was talking the my language. asylum. <laughs> this was the so and so, you know, and, and then there's always really interesting history. So I've gone to Chicago and, you know, the Valentine. I mean, I, Chicago. Chicago's got to be on a, on a center of some very bad juju because there is just <laughs> loads of these types of stories. And, and for such a young through. city, too, you know? Yeah. It's not very, I mean, it really is. It's like people talk about, oh, um, you know, a place, but like Chicago, I mean, we you could go there and you could spend eight weeks there and see a different quote unquote haunt. Like I call it haunted. And when I'm saying that, I'm mostly saying like, here's something really weird happened and the locals started talking about it. And that's how, you know, kind of thing it spread. Right. And we, you know, we've got plenty of it. And considering our, the oldest house in town is from 1836 in the UK, you'll probably have takeout menus older than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Let's, let's uh, um, set this historical context of some of this um, because this is a a really uh, interesting part in your book Um, so explain to us briefly or not whatever what kind of city was Chicago in the late 19th century because it seems like from your book the two main influences on the legacy of Holmes uh, were the police and the press so can you Hmm. describe how those two institutions operated in the late 19th century because as far as the newspapers are concerned as in as you describe them in your book, I, I see, and I'm sure John and Paul and Allie uh, see uh, quite a few parallels with how the London press, uh, we're used to discussing the Ripper murders and how the London press operated at, at, during the same time period. Um, although in Chicago, the police department you paint as a little bit more bumbling and corrupt than maybe we would, you know, look upon the London Police Department at uh, at the same time. Right. Chicago was a city that was growing faster than really any other city had grown before. We had just over a million people. Uh, 50 years before, we had about 3,000 people. I mean, it took London over a thousand years to get up to a million people. Chicago did it in about 50. At the time, we're in this very interesting period in history with the newspapers where everybody read newspapers. There were a dozen newspapers operating in Chicago or thereabouts. Uh, doing really in-depth reporting, you know, t- covering, you know, something that would uh, 20 years later would have gotten a couple of column inches, got pages and pages. And they had just gotten to the point where they could do illustrations in the paper regularly. Some of the papers would have dozens of drawings, but adding photographs was still too difficult for them. You very, very rarely saw a photograph and usually in advertisements at the time. We were just a few years away. If the whole Holmes case had happened a few years later, we'd have photographs of every victim, uh, everything inside of the castle.
vessel, every bit of evidence, and things that we really only have drawings of, if that in the case as it is. We were very much, a, you know, it was the 1890s, it was very much a transition between the 19th and the 20th century. Uh, the World's Fair was kind of like a preview of the 20th century for in, in many ways. And when they started investigating the murder castle, the press had almost unbelievable amount of access. They were digging through things with their bare hands themselves. They were ripping up carpets, and the police would just watch, the, would just kind of watch them going, that's some nice tearing up there, boys. And the police at the time were not really a profession. There was no police academy. Uh, there was no civil service exam really going on yet. We had a brand new chief of police at the time of the Holmes investigation here, this guy, uh, Chief Badenoch. Three months before, his job had been selling uh, flour and feed. But the new mayor liked the cut of his jib, so he made him the chief of police. Despite having zero legal training, zero police experience, uh, zero experience in forensics, nothing that would seem to make him a good candidate, he just uh, seemed like a good one because he seemed like a smart guy, and the fact that he wasn't a cop really made him uh, seem like a good candidate to people because the police department was so famously corrupt. Bringing in somebody from the outside to clean things up uh, seemed like a good idea to people at the time. But with the Holmes case, Chief Badenoch decided that he had solved every single unsolved murder of the last five or six years. And really just went nuts, more so than the press going nuts with the story of Holmes. I think the police got just as into it as the, as the press did. And the, uh, similar to um, during the, in the Whitechapel murders, this, as far as uh, from a researcher's perspective, uh, so when you go back and read these newspaper accounts of sensational crimes, they're nearly all, the, you'll, you'll see, always see something that's reported by one paper which is then picked up by another paper, but then it's retracted or corrected by the first paper a day or so later, but then that discredited story is then repeated again right. by some different newspaper who didn't get the memo that the first story had been retracted. And this seemed right. to happen a lot. lot. Yeah, it seemed to happen a lot in the Holmes case. And so some yeah. of these retracted stories managed to stick around long enough and be, be, be repeated often enough that they're now part of this murder castle lore. Right. Well, the press, I think, did, really did a very good job in Chicago. They were talking, you know, they would they would report whatever was being talked about, whatever was being rumored on that day. But when the rumors didn't go anywhere, they would also say that. And even some of the biggest tabloids, like the Chicago Mail, is a lot of fun to read now. It was a total tabloid, but the writing is just uh, just terrific, very lurid, people's attempts to sound like Ed, Edgar Allan Poe all the time. But within a couple of weeks of the investigation starting, they were publishing play scripts about the bumbling police and how they had come up with all these wild stories like uh, there was like one story about a girl who had been uh, like wrote a play about a girl who had been found dead and she wasn't smiling she always had a smile before Mr. Holmes must have stolen it and they they realized very quickly this story was getting out of hand. We're blaming him for everything under the sun. Everything we find in the basement, they say, must have been a murder weapon, which is just what had happened. They, there were a couple of weeks where it was like, oh, we found a rope. Maybe he was hanging people. We found a bench. Maybe that was a dissection table. Mm -hmm. And the press got, you know, got a hold of themselves after a couple of weeks and started saying the police are making complete fools of themselves in this case. Uh, but that the, that part of it didn't necessarily spread to the other papers. You know, this was a national story. Uh, papers all over the country were covering the Holmes case, but they'd cover the sensational parts, but not necessarily the boring. Oh, it turned out that the bone rigger was just nonsense. 
So it's the same thing that you get in the papers uh, these days. You know, you, you get the massive front page stories. I was thinking um, the same thing. I'm like, then, oh, oh, sure. We, it's easy to see parallels to today. Yeah. <laughs> and then the retractions uh, is a tiny column on page 40. You know, nowhere near the same thing as the original story. Is right. Now, does it frustrate you as a historian of the real life homes to continue to see things like uh, Ashbury's tall tales and fabrications repeated as fact time and time again? Oh, sure. Yeah, because this is something ripperologists have had to contend with as well for like the last 40 years. These untruths and proven falses that are endlessly repeated with each new telling. But the Ripper case at least has a large number of books available uh, Paul begs amongst them that that people can read the set the record straight. Yours um, seems, as far as I can tell, to be the first book to set the record straight. So it must That's, was my hope, yeah, because nobody had really. I, I found there's there's all, all these TV episodes and blog posts just repeating rehashing the same stuff that doesn't really happen to be true. There's never really been a comprehensive biography of the guy right. before. So just imagine, like, uh, <laughs> uh, as a ripper, I mean, um, it must be maddening to you uh, um, to see the the popular portrayal of Holmes uh, as, as such a, 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 a in direct opposition to the facts, because at least ripperologists have resources we can go to to learn the facts just imagine if none of those existed um and it must drive you crazy adam it it can i've kind of learned to live with the tall tale version of it frankly you know it is probably good for business for me but yet it's it gets it, it does get frustrating when you see people repeating things as fact that you just know are not true and you realize oh man i'm gonna have to spoil everybody's fun here <laughs> and I, I can see people's faces fall and I say, so how many people do you think he killed? And I say, nine. And they're like, oh, this is a good thing that another 191 people weren't tortured and killed down in the basement. You know, it's, it's a Have good thing. Have you seen thing. that show called Adam Ruins Everything? Where it's basically about a guy who takes these myths or what people think is true and then completely shreds it. It's an actual TV show now and it's called Adam Ruins Everything. And I just want to say... That seems very fitting, given you. Yeah, that seems like yeah, well, It's like they've known me my whole life. <laughs> it must be an Adam thing, perhaps. Apparently, <laughs> they just like going around destroying people's, you know, misconceptions. It is. It is a, a great story. It's probably why it, it has evolved and you know taken hold because it is. It is a much better story, you know, the whole World's Fair luring people, two hundred victims. It sounds much better than a rubbish con man. Right. For sure. It, it really is the the first sort of like, I mean, well, maybe not the first, I guess, Jack, it, it, some other, you know, but it's it's the entertainment commercializing and making entertainment when it's supposed to be news, like selling mm. blatant myth and, fa- you know, BS, but it's good business. So let's run with it and sell it. Right. And it doesn't really matter if it's the truth or not. This is a much better story. It's going mm. to sell papers. The, the classic line, when the legend is better than the fact, print the legend. But we <laughs> yeah. should all, we should also print it. Nowadays, you know, it, paper is not as expensive as it used to be. We can print the fact, too, you know. Yeah, but this is like the Jack the Ripper case on steroids as far as the <laughs> Yeah, amount, I, uh, it, it's uh, no way, you know, the Jack the Ripper um, 
exaggerations and myths and legends are very tame compared to this. Well, and they grew after, too. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of this blatant bs and, like, you know, was the body buried, you know, in the cellar? What, what, let's, you know, where's the vats of acid kind of thing? I mean, yeah, they were exaggerated and whatever, but you didn't was... see it right from the very start of the, the myth formed. You, you, know, you know what I mean? Like, the oh, it was the... I don't know. I, I see the the papers and the Jack the Ripper are much different. Like, yeah, they're a little sensationalist. Woman found dead, but you know, a woman was actually found dead. You know, yeah, so right. there was there, there was the habit of you know every single time there was a murder in late eighteen eighty eight to probably eighteen ninety one, some paper or other did you know say was it Jack the Ripper? You know, as far away as the other side of you know the UK and stuff. I've come across one you know in in South Wales. Oh, the um, other side of the world. I mean, if you consider yeah, yeah, no, no, Nicaragua no, no, no. and the Austin Servant Girl murders, and you know, yeah, most most definitely. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was, I was yeah. reading Adam's book, I was noticing those parallels. I think I think the um, thing about the Ripper was that it w- was why he killed because people weren't aware of of serial killers so much. And so it was a bit baffling. And right from the get-go, there were people trying very hard to give uh, a motive to Jack the Ripper. Uh, and, and that has continued, if you like, right through until the, the present day, where you still have people naming the Ripper in, in this case, whereas before they tried to think of occupations like a mad doctor or a state lunatic in an asylum and so forth. Whereas with Holmes, it was more to do with, and much in the same sense as Lizzie Borden, uh, did he do it, or and, and in the Holmes case, uh, what was it that he did do, and the, and that mm. was exaggerated extensively. As, as right. Just been saying. Uh, there's, the other twist in the Holmes case is that a lot for a lot of it, Holmes has nobody but himself to blame. <laughs> What? Yeah, and he, he he you know after after it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to be hanged, there was no getting around it. The state supreme court had made their ruling. Uh, he was definitely being hanged at that point. He really started right in working to spread the myth himself with his confession and everything. Yeah, the, the confession where he confesses to killing several people who were demonstrably still alive. I thought. Right. <laughs> And you know, comparing himself, you know, trying to cast himself as being a demon or a devil, you know, he he's trying to build the myth himself, you know. Call, you know, I think he he wanted to be, I think he wanted to be infamous and remembered rather than just be a two-bit con man who gets hanged for killing. right. Uh, one of his wives, Myrna, said that his motto was "Mediocrity is nothing." So once that he did, once, once it was a once it was a foregone conclusion that he was a criminal, he decided he had to make sure that people thought he was the best criminal, not just some mediocre one. Mm. And and after his arrest, so um, uh, just to educate our listeners, so he was arrested initially um, for the insurance fraud, um, right? And and there was an and 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 people believe that Peitzel might still be alive and that he substituted a different body. Uh, that was Holmes' and, story at the time, right? So there was this kind of this open question as uh, some people believed that it was Peitzel, and and um, and then Holmes. Um, well, so what? 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 The trial portion of your book, with, with the arrest and, and and trial portion of your book, following the the uh, the 
section where he's hopscotching around the country with these two families. I mean, the trial is almost like a comedy of of equal oh. portions to the uh, yeah. Peitzel family make- thing. Because because um, it's almost I was thinking um, I, I was reminded of the Crippen case. So they had a body in the cellar that they thought that they had identified. The prosecution believed they had identified, but everyone was kind of on pins and needles, hoping that Cora Crippen doesn't pop up out of nowhere and waltz into that courtroom all of a sudden uh, right. alive. And it was a kind of a similar thing going on with the Holmstead. Many Williams. Um, who Holmes had claimed uh, had the children with her uh, and had moved to London, um, was supposedly spotted with and without Holmes several times after she had supposedly died. Peitzel himself was reportedly Mm. seen alive on a few occasions after his death. And, And when nearly all of the people that the press accused Holmes of murdering uh, or had been claimed to have gone missing from Holmes Castle, end up turning up alive. So, right. <laughs> you, so yeah, you know, there was the, uh, some of the police were even saying in Chicago, "Well, if Benny Williams showed up alive, I wouldn't be at all surprised." Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but by the by August, uh, Chief Badenoch was made, had made such a fool of himself on the Holmes investigation that people asked him, "Well, what do you think if Minnie Williams showed up in town?" He said, "It wouldn't even be worth my time to meet with her." <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, the trial and his attorney, um, oh. <laughs> was, was just, you got to figure, you know, I, I don't know if you, uh, you had, you were quoted Adam recently, I think it was in the Chicago Tribune where you had said, um, that you would have an easier time acquitting Holmes of the murders that he was convicted of than you would convicting him of the Ripper murders or something along right. those lines. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I don't think um, Holmes was innocent by any means, but I could put together probably a fairly compelling case that he was. And it's uh, legal watchers who were watching the trial were almost surprised that he was convicted. It's, but it's, he had an interesting case. He had two attorneys. Uh, both of them were just in their early 20s, fresh out of law school. Uh, the, the, the DA had been one of their teachers in school for in, uh, in law school for a while. And what, of the two attorneys, one of them, William Shoemaker seems like the biggest goon in the world. Uh, clearly, in way over his head. Uh, the, the other, his partner Samuel Rotan, went on to become the DA himself. He was clearly outspent. He had a lack of experience. He didn't lack talent. Uh, the the defense ended up not putting in a case at all. They decided not to just rest their case right after the prosecution was done because they figured they had done such a bad job of establishing that Holmes was the one who had killed Benjamin Peitzel, which is probably fair. If it had been not such a publicized case, I think there's a pretty good chance that they would have had to acquit him on lack of evidence mm-hmm. but then he most likely would have been tried for the murder oh yeah they, they would have the taken children, to, which they had they a would lot have, they would have evidence. taken him to irvington or to toronto where it was a lot better but you he still could have possibly convinced people that no i i was involved with this sure but it was actually this other guy this mysterious third man on the scene right and you know the, the fact that yeah you, he was supposed to be a smart guy you really think he would have buried bodies in a shallow grave of a rental property um do you really think he could have killed howard peitzel as and dis- 
disposed of the body as quickly and sloppily as he did and then made his way straight out to uh, straight out to Chicago, he could have probably persuaded people that there must have been somebody else involved. I'm not sure that there was, but it's um, you could have probably persuaded people. Going, going back to the, uh, the defense attorneys, uh, William Shoemaker, I think, is if you wrote a fictional character <laughs> of, that, of that caliber, people would say it's too. Un- he's like the. F- this is a British reference. The Americans might not get this. He is like the Frank Spencer of of the American legal system by the look of it. The, the, and you were right. The Americans yeah, over my did not head. get yeah. that. <laughs> uh, so a, a very uh, a, a well meaning but quite hapless and useless person who always bungles everything. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how well-meaning Shoemaker was. So Shoemaker well, came to the came came in, came to Holmes and said, "I've got this this mysterious man gave me a letter and the uh, and the and the wherewithal to retain for, for you to retain my services." And the guy he'd been in the paper before from going ghost hunting, trying to commune with the spirit of a murdered woman to try to solve the uh, thing. Also drunk off his ass at the time too. Um, was right out of law school, clearly in way over his head. Uh, came up with just the most ridiculous uh, lines of defense occasionally at one point he even implied that the mysterious stranger was former president benjamin harrison yeah (laughs) he was responsible for the murders yeah right so maybe maybe it was yeah so maybe you know he he matched the description of hatch the guy that said holmes had been doing all of the killing so maybe the real killer was benjamin harrison the entire time i but i'm reading the book i when shoemaker during the cross-examination of georgina holmes's third wife or third concurrent wife was it she third yeah third third that we yeah. know of yeah and when when he runs in and objects to his own you know co-defense counsel i first i'm laughing i could not stop laughing at that right moment. right Right in the middle of a cross-examination, he ran into the courtroom shouting, Your Honor, we object! And the a judge said, uh, you know, you're up right now. You're, you're objecting to yourself. <laughs> and the, I think the papers noted that Rotan just shot him the most withering look. <laughs> and he was set up by, he ended up being um, set up by the prosecution side to produce a uh, uh, fake witness testimony or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Somebody yeah. came. Somebody came into his office and said, "Yes, I've seen Benjamin Peitzel alive. I'll sign this statement that you've already written ahead." And, and he paid the, him the, to do it as well, didn't he? It was, yeah, it was. It was a detective working. It was like a reporter or somebody from the police department working undercover. I forget the exact details of who she was. But then in the trial, when they were asking for a new thing, he showed up and said, "All right, I've got this signed statement from a person who said that they've seen Benjamin Peitzel." And then the woman stood up and said. Aha! It is I. <laughs> right, and, and he uh, ended up being being disbarred for a few months yeah. because of that. But even then, a lot of a lot of other lawyers thought it was a dirty trick on their part. Mm-hmm. And do we know? Uh, I forget if your book mentions what happened to him later in life. I have. No idea what the hell happened to William Shoemaker. Unfortunately, it's it's a, a common enough name that it was fairly difficult to figure out what really became of him. Rotan went on to be the district attorney for years, so he, he came out all right. But Shoemaker just—I uh, think he just kind of disappears from the record after this. If you ever write a book on William Shoemaker, I I would buy in. <laughs> I'd love to find more about William Shoemaker. <laughs> I'd probably have to go to Philadelphia to find more on him, but I'm sure the legal archives there have all kinds of stuff. Yeah, the, the section of your book covering the book treatments of the Holmes case, back to the myth establishing aspect. Um, the section of your book covering the book treatments of the Holmes case throughout the 20th century was really enjoyable. 
And it, okay. it made me want to track down some of them. Um, listeners might be aware of Robin O'Dell's book, Ripperology, with, which gives a similar rundown of the history of writing about the Ripper case. And there's something about the examination of this evolution of popular myths based on real events that I find um, really interesting. So that part of your book was a great read. It was, it was really unique. Uh, I don't know if John and Paul, uh, you know, feel the same way, but the way you incorporated so many different elements, uh, you know, giving us a straight biography of Holmes, it's a true crime book, obviously, but then tracing the myth, like adding all of this into one book, you, you know, um, where I guess you probably could have written two or three that covered probably, different yeah, aspects but, of this book. It, it was it was um, was really enjoyable. So, um, oh, thank you. I, I I and I I dig that kind of stuff um, personally. Like reading the history of something, like the Ripper, like the history of Ripperology. You know, is really right. interesting to me. And then the, the history of the evolution of the Holmes legend I found was really interesting. You guys feel the same way? Yeah, I, I, I always yeah. find that fascinating, that type of thing, seeing how history develops into a myth or a legend or a folk story. So, yeah, yeah, and the fact that it, it could have been two books, but the fact that it was concurrent, that you saw how the developments happened um, you know, during the, tri- the arrest and the trial, I, it was a lot, you know, easier, you know, because you, you were, for me, you were kind of, it helped in me demolishing my preconceptions about the case and what what I thought I knew is, okay, well, that's where that came from. So, you know, it it made you understand where the utter nonsense just sprung up from rather than, you know, just uh, if it was a separate thing. So I think it was really good at that, yeah. Oh, thank you. It sometimes sometimes appears that history is fairly arbitrary in its choice of uh, who it's going to remember and who it's going to forget. Totally. I've often often thought that uh, out of all the, the marshals in the Wild West, why does Wyatt Earp get remembered? And again, the story, the real story of Wyatt Earp get twisted into this character that when I was a kid growing up, we had the television series where the theme song refers to him as being brave, courageous and bold. Uh, when chances are that he was none of those things particularly, uh, although right. brave probably. Uh, but when you start to look into the story, you find out why, what it was that, that caused the, uh, the individual to be remembered. And I think you've done the same thing with H.H. H. Holmes. Um, theoretically, right. uh, although he murdered nine, nine people, uh, it's, it's all the, the other stuff that he's remembered for. And it's mm. great to be able to go back and strip away... Uh, and peel away the the, the pieces of of the onion skin and and get to the core of of the story. Right. One of the the things that... It helped that he was written about so infrequently throughout the 20th century. As You can just take the five or six books and articles that did come out and trace what they each added to it and how they built on each other and sort of trace the threads of where everything came from and how it developed. Uh, whereas if there had been a whole TV series and dozens and dozens of books like there had been with The Ripper, it might have been a lot harder to figure out where some of this stuff came from and how it became a part of the legends. Whereas with Holmes, it's really fairly clear. It's fairly clear cut with Holmes. Yeah, when I when I started doing the, the Ripper about thirty years ago, of course we're pretty much in the same situation as you are. 
yeah. in that there wasn't all this vast literature available. There was just uh, just a few few books and uh, loads of theories and movies and and things of that kind. So you could sort of cut through the the stories to get to the core. So mm. it's but I think you you, you did a uh, a, a superb job, and I, I think when I reviewed the book for Ripperologist, I I said that uh, that it uh, should almost be compulsory reading. Oh, thank uh, you. As an example of uh, of what somebody can do mm. uh, by applying rigorous historical methodology to uh, to these stories, and uh, a superb book. Now, both um, John and Paul were asked to participate in the History Channel program, American Ripper, about the likelihood of Holmes being Jack the Ripper. Um, Now, at that point, which was late last year, it was uh, prior to the publication of Adam's book, of course. And I assume you, and I know John by just hearing you talk today, and I assume both of you were under the impression that I was that, I was, that Holmes was rumored to have a operated hotel during the World's Fair and the guests went missing and all of that stuff. Uh, so I was lucky uh, in that respect as, as far as I didn't actually know very much about H.H. Holmes at all, apart from the sort of... Uh, vague thing about the the murder castle and all that thing, but I didn't know anything factually about it, really, uh, and until I'd, I'd read read a couple of uh, books before, which I didn't really uh, like very much, and mainly read them because of their claims uh, about Holmes being the Ripper. Uh, Adam's book was the first one because he doesn't discuss the Ripper at all. Um, so it's the first book that I read that was uh, a, just a great read about Holmes from beginning to end. So when I did the program, um, I did say to them, well, look, I, I don't know anything about H.H. H. Holmes. I don't think he was Jack the Ripper, but fine, you know, if that's, if that's okay with you, I'll talk about Jack the Ripper quite happily. And indeed, I did. For me, I'd um, well, I, I'd seen a couple of documentaries on Holmes, and I'd read. Um, I hadn't read an entire book about him, but you know, he'd been in a couple of books, uh, general true crime serial killer books. I'd read, and I'd read some articles or blogs online about him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was I was more of a panel discussion than Paul. I, I was in the right place at the right time uh, to to for the documentary rather than actually being approached. So. <laughs> That was me as well. I was in the yeah. same lobby, and I just decided to stay upstairs and get a little um, liquid while uh, – <laughs> or I should say liquidified because there was more than one liquid. Uh, I, I sat upstairs and drank and talked, just chatted to people instead of doing it. But I ha- I mean I visited the like federal building, I think it is, where the murder castle used to be. Um, you know, uh, I can't post remember. There's a, yeah. there's a post. The post office covers a little bit of the space. Most of it would have been in the grassy knoll next to it. Mm. Yeah, there's always you know. a grassy knoll. It's always a grassy knoll. <laughs> and that, uh, see, now you got to wonder what do you know about that one? <laughs> so, not uh, a thing. Things <laughs> changed, but no. Um, but yeah. So, uh, you know, I've done it. But I mean, and again, 
I'm a Jack the Ripper, you know, person more than most, but, um, I just like, no, that's not possible. He wasn't Jack the Ripper. You know, the motivations were too different. Uh, he wasn't a sexual sadist by any means. Uh, you know, so I just, I was like, no, I could stay up here and drink or I could go down there and discuss a theory I know just doesn't well, that, hold water. That's just and, kind of what I find interesting is that <laughs> this round table of Ripperologists that I assume we're going to see possibly in the next episode are uh, are going to be a, a, a group of people who probably have an entirely mistaken view of his crimes. Well, yeah, I, um, I, had, um, I had quite a mistaken view of his crimes. Just uh, for context for people... Um, we were, uh, it was, a lot of ripperologists were in London for uh, the 1888-2016 conference event. Um, and we were t- invited uh, by the Whitechapel Society to come to the Chamberlain Hotel where they meet because uh, the people making the Hatred Holmes documentary wanted a roundtable discussion framed as a Whitechapel Society meeting with um, uh, Jeff Mudgett and uh, Amaryllis Fox. Um, so we got there and um, they, they said, oh, we'll, we'll buy you a drink if you'll sit around the table and just talk about if you think Holmes was the Ripper. Um, a couple of people were open-minded, a couple of people were sceptical. I was one of the more sceptical ones. Um, and that was when I thought that Holmes operated the murder castle. Um, now that I know he didn't, and that's a myth, I am even more sceptical <laughs> of, uh, of him being Jack the Ripper because it is such... There was a difference uh, in the modus operandi anyway. Um, uh, for those you know who don't know, my, my ba- academic background uh, is in forensic psychology. I have a master's degree in forensic psychology, so I know a fair bit about serial killers, profiling, uh, etc. Um, so, you know, the, the typology difference was there already. But now that I know that, you know, the murder castle is a load of bull... Um, <laughs> It's such a massive difference. So I think it's even more unlikely he was Jack the Ripper. I couldn't couldn't get past uh, the fact that there was no... I could never find any um, evidence to support the statement in one of the books that I had read uh, mm. that he was in London and, in fact, was uh, living on Brick Lane or near to Brick Lane and uh, things of that that those sort of claims, I couldn't find any supporting evidence for, mm. for that. So I was, without necessarily knowing or retaining much information about Holmes himself, uh, because most of it I sort of set aside because he ceased to be of, of interest to me in a way because he, yeah. he wasn't Jack the Ripper. Yeah, uh, that, that was... So the, that the, was the, my, my issue. I couldn't find any dates. Mm. The, the geography is one of the reasons why I completely dismiss it, first of all. The fact there's no, you can't put him outside of North America at all during his life. Um, a frequent thing I've seen in articles that do bring up was Holmes the Ripper is handwriting comparisons. Um, for anyone who has looked at Victorian handwriting, for start, handwriting analysis is not 100% an exact science. It's very much an art. Um, I think most reputable document analyzers will attest to that. But with Victorians, it's even more difficult because of the way they were taught um, handwriting. And then the other thing is sketches, the photographs and sketches of Holmes look like sketches 
um, of supposed uh, Jack, Jack the Ripper in newspapers from eyewitnesses, and also they look like that photo fit done for documentary a few years ago. Um, you know, the one that looks like Freddie Mercury. Yes, uh, the Freddie Mercury one. That's Freddie that Mercury one, he truly yeah. was a killer queen. And it just, you know, eyewitness descriptions from what they had and the way they were taken at the time, they cannot be relied on for anything. And then using them to do a composite picture 125 years later, uh, it's just not reliable. So you, none of those things can be used as evidence at any time, as far as I'm concerned. So I think the whole thing is just a non-starter. Well, yeah, and um, Holmes' uh, appearance uh, even plays into his own his own case in that um, Adam points out in his book that Holmes was, uh, in his in his own murder trial, uh, uh, there's conflicting evidence of where he was at any given point in time, mainly because everybody in Chicago wore the exact same kind of hat and had the exact same style of mustache. And, and, no, and nothing in the world is as popular today as mustaches were then. <laughs> so even if the... Freddie Mercury is what we call it in the Ripperology, the Freddie Mercury photo fit that, um, you know, uh, four, four or five years ago, they tried to tie to George Chapman is now being tried tied to Holmes. Um, you know, uh, you know, nine, 90% of the population in Whitechapel could have looked just like that. You know, mm. I think every, so many suspects have been tried to be tied to that. Uh, th- that picture, and it's just it's a non-starter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful uh, the first film ever shot in Chicago was a thing called Police Parade in 1896 by uh, the people working for the Lumiere brothers. It's a shot of a couple of hundred police officers walking past the camera. Some of them might have been working on the uh, Holmes case. In fact, uh, 197 out of 200 have mustaches. <laughs> huh. Now we're recording this show after only the first episode of the History Channel documentary American Ripper has aired. I believe there's supposed to be six or eight of them. Um, Does anyone know the exact number? I believe eight. Last I heard it was eight. They don't always keep me in the in the. They don't keep me up to date on everything with it. Um, all, all I can say is, you know, they, they've found what they think is evidence. I've got what I think is evidence. So uh, read the book, watch the show, decide for yourself. Right. And I'm not sure if you're allowed to comment um, about um, the idea that um, Holmes – well, I'll ask it this way. Maybe you can answer it this way. <laughs> um, when, when did the first uh, rumor fir- first emerge in the Holmes myth – that he escaped the gallows. There were a couple of articles in 1898 to that effect. There was a rumor going around in Englewood, um, spread around by one of the guys Holmes had confessed to murdering who was still alive. Apparently there was a pamphlet published to that effect too by one of the other people that hold, that uh, no longer surviving pamphlet, but a pamphlet called uh, Hanged by Proxy, written by one of the other people that Holmes had confessed to murdering that was probably still alive. It, they prob- it probably told the same story that was going around in Englewood. Uh, it was just a two-day story at the time. I, there's a, a blog post up where the hanging was covered in great detail by the press. And the story that they told in those articles certainly doesn't really gel with it. But you know, I love a good fake death theory. Right, I, I realize they hardly ever turn out to be true, but I love a good fake death theory. I got no problem with digging anybody up. He's dead. He's not going to notice. 
Yeah, you're, you, the, the blog um, you're ta- you're referring to your blog posts on your website, and and I saw that it's a, a very lengthy and detailed article. I'll give um, a link to it. Um, no, pro- sh- probably too damn, probably more detail than most people would want to see. But there are a, there are certainly yeah. some discrepancies in in the reporting, uh, both of where they were digging and what where they were going to be burying them eventually. They, they do different articles have different plots marked out in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I think, you, believe it was. Oh, go ahead, John. Uh, Adam, do, do you think that Holmes almost wanted to encourage such rumors himself by the way he wanted to be buried? Um, because it, it's quite bizarre the fact that he wanted to be buried. Yeah, that, in, that's that is one thing that I could never really get a good handle on is why he wanted to be buried in cement. And it was starting to become sort of a uh, sort of a trend in the late 19th century to be buried in cement. Like here in Chicago, a, a while later, oh, we had okay, George Pullman so. was buried that way. Um, because there was, there was a thing like a guy in New York, A.T. Stewart, had been uh, kidnapped. His body had been kidnapped and held for ransom. Uh, the same thing had almost happened with Abraham Lincoln some years before. So it was kind of a trend, but exactly what was going through Holmes's mind at the time, I have no idea. I'm sure yes. that he would love it if people were thinking that he had faked his death at this point. Yeah, and he, so, and so it, it wasn't you, a complete. Go ahead, John. Sorry, uh, so, so it wasn't a complete uh, one-off thing. The Holmes uh, having it, and there were other examples of people having similar. There, there were, but I think most of them. I think most of them were after Holmes. I don't know how many of them yeah, were okay. really before that. There was one paper that said he had read an article about people doing that, like embalming by being put in cement. I couldn't find the article in question, though, if it was real. And your book mentions while he was awaiting his execution that he was receiving letters from various uh, medical institutions, medical colleges and stuff, asking him to, to release his body to them for study and dissection. So it seemed that oh, yeah. he had this fear that his body was going to be tampered with after death. Um, and so much that, I, if I recall correctly, he di- directed his attorney in writing to prevent his remains from ever being tampered with. I wonder if that... Um, uh, that little uh, direction is still in existence, but so so he did seem to f- have this fear that his his body was going to be shipped off for you know for the purposes of medical science instead. Right. Cer- um, certainly, people were offering a lot of money either for medical science or even to be to use them as a carnival attraction. Mm-hmm. And, and his execution itself was witnessed by. Um, what all nearly a hundred people? I'd, I'd say so. There were about sixty to sixty to seventy guests who had gotten admission tickets, and besides that, there was the jury, uh, the prison officials, etc. So I'd, I'd say in the neighborhood of a hundred. Yeah. So as you just said, in 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 attendance were um, were members of the jury that although it was a short trial, only six days, which is uh, well, it wasn't. Wasn't the same jury. It was uh, mostly the the jury that they brought to watch the hanging. There was only, I think, only one or two people was actually had been in the regular jury. Okay, um, but were other uh, people in, uh, invited guests and things? People who had participated in his trial, uh, friends or acquaintances? I say friends loosely, but right, uh, not typically. Well, there were people like uh, Frank Geyer, the detective, was present. Uh, L. G. Fowles from Fidelity Mutual was present. These were people who knew Holmes pretty well and hated his guts. Mm-hmm. And who would have uh, recognized if um, if the the person that they were about to execute wasn't Holmes? Right, I would think they would. They would have had to be in on the plot. Mm-hmm. 
But we, we've covered that police could be pretty corrupt in those days. So there was a, there were there are a lot of people. It also includes um, there were sheriffs brought in from other cities that were that were involved in it, doctors, etc., prison guards. A lot of people would you know one of the reasons that I like a good faked death theory is usually you only need a couple of people to be involved in it. In this case, there were an awful lot of people there. Like like when when Christopher Marlowe was killed in 1593, there were like two people in the room with them. There was a coroner's jury, but they wouldn't have known Christopher Marlowe from Adam necessarily. So theoretically, you know, you could, you could say you only had to have a couple of people involved and they were known to be shady underworld types anyway. In this case, we do have a lot more witnesses to the execution. Yeah, That's just something for them to contend with, I guess. You had mentioned earlier that you, you know, were a tour guide. And of course, Ripper Industry, I think, may have started the ghoul tourism business. Quite, no, quite quite possibly. I know I know we've had ghost tours in Chicago since the 1970s. I don't know how long Ripper tours have gone on. Since about 1888. Probably. Well, you know, there, there were also, you know, there was there was a guy running tours of the Murder Castle building in August of 1895. Yeah. Uh, yes. Right when something Same was going thing. on. Like yeah. they were they were showing them through Mary Kelly's room. I think was a was that rumor or was that actually confirmed at some point? That McCarthy was doing that. A, Somebody was. I have a headache right that now. That still so remains I, rumor, but right. yeah. certainly yeah. you've got that lady who came over that was in that photograph in uh, was it Philip Hutchinson's book or Shadrach? Yeah, 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 yeah. Philip Hutchinson. The Jackfield Yard. Uh, that's right. Okay. That's Wasn't there also um, a tour the Conan Doyle or someone went on in eighteen nineteen. Well, there was that, there was that one as well. Yeah. Yes, that was conducted by Doctor George Baxter Phillips. That's I think it was yeah. Another another interesting parallel I noticed between the Ripper case and the the, the Holmes case, just going backwards here, um, was that the um, the people who uh, had the shops downstairs in the castle and shops nearby putting things on display um, connected oh, yeah. to, uh, even stuff that probably wasn't you know it reminded me a lot of the Ripper case where you had like people setting up temporary waxworks exhibitions and stuff again shop, shops in Whitechapel it's just an interesting uh, similarity I thought Oh yeah, there's the there's that wonderful scene with Jarley's waxworks in the uh, the old curiosity shop showing all the waxworks of famous murderers and I'm not sure when that book takes place when uh, old curiosity shop does but you know b- b- before the ripper even. Mm. And another connection oh. that we wanted to get in here there's some other parallels like Hal Kane um comes in into the uh the picture with Holmes while he is uh in prison and right. and there's a connection uh, with I had no uh, idea the ripper was a suspect with... yeah, yeah. Fr- francis tumblety um who was the american quack doctor <laughs> i'm not sure how familiar you are with the ripper case adam but oh, so, um so i know I, enough that i know the name tumblety pretty well okay so he he uh and, and there's a, a, a few similarities i found i don't know if you guys um saw these as well but just between holmes and tumblety like i wouldn't have been surprised Definitely, if they would yeah. have known each other or ran into each other right um because they were both kind of aspiring quack doctors tumblety was a successful quack doctor holmes seemed to wish he was uh, a quack doctor and, and you know spending time in st louis and montreal and toronto and around the buffalo new york area um i don't know if tumblety was so much in chicago but then tumblety had a relationship for a period of time with hal kane 
Um, and one That's, of the sur- I had no idea that. That's fascinating. Yeah, and one of the surviving photographs of Tumble T actually came from Hal Kane's family. Um, it was passed down. And it gets a, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it gets a little convoluted into Tumble T's uh, suspect candidacy for being the Ripper because Hal Kane was um, involved with Bram Stoker and, and um, Irving and the Lyceum Theater. And there's all this milieu of what they called the Beefsteak Club in London. And, and uh, so anyway, so that it kind of um, wraps Tumble T up into this whole Bram Stoker basing Dracula off of the Ripper murders and all this. Um, but Hal hmm. came, so I was really, uh, I was surprised to see Hal came pop up. Was any, uh, John, did you kind of get the same thing? It was like, Oh, wow. Um, I, I don't know too much about him. Um, Hal came as far as being, a, um, a, essentially a crime, uh, aficionado, uh, it, was, it was a no- novelist is what he was. Yeah. Um, his novels were popular at the time. They don't really seem to be anymore. Uh, they're probably that the Victorian school of literature that's practically unreadable now. Um, he went to New York shortly after the Holmes trial to give a lecture on the moral duty of the author, which sounds like a terrible snooze fest to me. And they didn't really talk – when the, the reporters all swarmed on and They didn't really talk too much about him uh, – about the lecture. But they did say, didn't you go visit H.H. H. Holmes in prison a couple of weeks ago? And he said, yeah, I did. He uh, – I'm glad I wasn't a judge. He looked like an innocent kind of guy to me. Uh, the, the exact quote varies from paper to paper a little bit. But later on, he told a story that he was in his hotel in New York and suddenly representatives of different papers started coming and saying, hey, we've got this thing that Holmes has written. Can you write a review of it? And he said no. And he uh, had another arrival paper tried to uh, trick him into giving it back to them. Uh, later on, apparently, uh, Hearst's New York Journal wrote a, pu- published his review anyway. And he really objected to it, and this kind of made the news at the time. I've never been able to find the review. I went through the whole New York Journal archives at the Library of Congress, couldn't find a thing. Um, so I don't know, maybe it just wasn't in the edition that got that, that eventually was archived. Right. But la- later on, when Holmes talked about this uh, in his confession, he talks about a well-known author who says that I look li- I'm starting to look like the devil. That was presumably a reference to Hall Kane. Though where in the hell ha- Hall Kane said that he looked like the devil is also missing. But yeah, I had no idea he was connected to Tumble Tea. That's fascinating. You've also got, just, just quickly with uh, making connections between Jack the Ripper and Chicago, of course, is that, is that you have the Whitechapel Club. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And that was instrumental in creating the whole Dr. Dull uh, story, about uh, which, if you're not familiar with that, is all part of the Royal Conspiracy tale. Hmm. So yeah, the Whitechapel that... Right. Uh, for those who might know, the White Whitechapel Club in Chicago was mostly a press club. There's, uh, it was it was a very morbid press club. They would meet in a little mm. place off an off an alley on LaSalle. They had like the skeleton of one of their members was there. They very famously cremated one of their members when he died, which was the kind of thing that made the news back then. Uh, they had like ropes from various hangings, and most of what they would do was drink. There's a couple of accounts of a night at the Whitechapel Club, and most of what they did was drink. But they were guys with a very morbid sense of humor. Sounds like us now, really. Yeah, <laughs> fair, yeah it's, it's, they sound like they sound like a pretty good bunch of guys, honestly. Yeah, yeah they go. I this club I join. Mm. Well, Adam, I want to thank you again for being on the show. And, Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure, um, and um, I encourage everyone to buy and read your book, H. H. Holmes.
the true history of the White City Devil. And um, right. and you you uh, do, now do you still run tours in Chicago or or have I you retired? Sh- I from- sure do. Yeah, I ran a, I ran a, a walking ghost tour just the other night. I, I work for uh, one of the boat tours, just showing off architecture and things. Though I still managed to work in some crime stories here and there. And I've got a cemetery walking tour on the twenty third coming up. So I, I do a whole variety of tours here. That's. Uh, Did you ever take them out and see Resurrection Mary? <laughs> I've taken a couple of groups to Resurrection Cemetery just privately. It's too far away from anything else yeah, to really go wait, there. That's the one I haven't. I wanted to do the drive because, like I said, right. we do sort of history, like ghosty things, and I've well, never made it out there. Right. Well, there's there's not too much to see there. It's just a, really just a cemetery. For those who may not know, it's one of our more famous ghosts. People pick up a girl by the side of the road and offer her a ride home, then she disappears outside of Resurrection Cemetery. And you know, the same thing kind of happened to me. Uh, I was uh, give, out giving rides for Lyft, which is similar to Uber, and I picked up this woman in Rogers Park. She got into the car along with this guy who looked like uh, Pedro from the movie Napoleon Dynamite. And I started talking. I was like, oh, you guys live in uh, Rogers Park? You guys live in Ravenswood, eh? That's a, it's a nice area. You like it there? And I drove right by Rose Hill Cemetery and talked about giving tours there. And then when I dropped them off, the woman got out of the car and nobody else did. And I said, wasn't there a guy who looked like Pedro? And everything? He said, no, I wonder why you kept saying you too, talking like there was two of us. And then I remember we'd gone right by Rose Hill Cemetery. So that's our newest ghost is Rose Hill Pedro. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it's just my mind playing tricks on me. I can, it gives you some insight into how a cab driver could think that he had dropped a woman off like that. Um, or, or where some of these vanishing hitchhiker stories come from. Just to avoid paying the fare, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all on an app, so we didn't even have to, you know. Uh, and it, and yeah. it's um, more fool him. Yep, <laughs> it's a um, mysterious uh, ghost tours of Chicago. I, uh, MysteriousChicago.com will link you to all of my stuff, and we'll uh, provide a link in the show notes uh, for that um, website, as well as your your own uh, website where we, when we referred to the blogs that um, you have written about the Holmes case, you'll be able to find a lot of stuff there. So, well, um, your book is fascinating, and thanks again, Adam, for being on. All right, thanks a lot. And that was author Adam Selzer on his new book, H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. Adam's website, if you would like to read further on H.H. Holmes, is at adamselzer.blogspot.com. And for more information on his tour guide activities, visit MysteriousChicago.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders and Victorian true crime. I would like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.